Okay, so um, we're moving on to the second part of Ephesians chapter 5 in our um, series of studies. And the subject for uh, today has got the, uh, the grand title, Marriage Matters. Or maybe it should be said, Marriage Matters. I think there's a subtle difference between, <laughs> between, <laughs> between, between the two. If you don't get the Marriage Matters right, then maybe the marriage doesn't matter. Ah, but that's what we're going to be learning about today. So, um, our passage starts where Steve's ministry ended last week, and that's Ephesians 5, chapter, um, uh, verse 21, uh, which says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And really, everything that we're going to think about over the next two weeks is an application of that verse. <coughs> It's all about how we should submit to one another in the context of different types of relationship. And that's important because you won't necessarily be in all or any of the relationships that we're going to be thinking about over the next uh, two weeks. But the principles that we're going to be thinking about do have a wider application. And as we'll see today, they also teach us or remind us of things uh, to do with our relationship with the Lord. So as we're going to be thinking about husbands and wives today, it doesn't matter if you're not married, or you're no longer married, or you have no intention of ever getting married. Uh, verse 32 says, the relationship between husband and wife is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And we're all part of that, aren't we, as believers in the Lord Jesus. So let's read the passage, Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So what does all that mean? Well, let's start with verse 22, because it's at the beginning of the passage, obviously. And let's just say what it doesn't mean, okay? Gender equality is something that the world is still a 
long way off accepting. And I think in many countries that's often due to deep cultural uh, uh, differences, cultural convictions. But even in the UK where sexual discrimination is illegal, even in the UK there is still lots of evidence of women being treated less favourably than their male counterparts. And it's been like that since the beginning of civilization. And even in the Christian community, we've had around 2,000 years of this verse often being misinterpreted. And not just misinterpreted, but I suspect often knowingly abused by men who see women as less capable, less important, less intelligent than themselves. Men who think this verse gives them license to treat women as servants and nothing could be further from the truth. So as we think about these verses today, keep verse 21 in mind that we should all be submitting to one another. Also keep in mind Galatians chapter, um, chapter 3, which reminds us that male and female are all one in Christ. So as equals, we are called, all of us, to mutual submission. And that must include husbands and wives. But we can't rewrite verse 22. And we can't take it out of the passage. So we do need to understand what it means. Why does Paul highlight the need in particular for wives to submit to their husbands? And what does that mean in the context of verse 21? The reasons given in verse 23, although at first glance it's not, it's not especially helpful until we go on, um, and some have suggested that this verse, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Some have suggested different meanings there for the word head. And I think that's probably because some people, like maybe many husbands, feel uncomfortable with the role that God is, is giving to us. But... I looked up multiple commentators and the overwhelming view of commentators, Bible commentators and, and scholars, is that the word for head here um, does mean authority. The husband has authority over the wife, just as Christ has authority over the church. But what male chauvinists fail to understand is that this authority has to be exercised in the same way that Christ exercises his authority over the church. And that is sacrificially. Sacrificially. We're talking about servant leadership here. Remember Jesus said in Mark 10 that he hadn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. So the husband must serve his wife. And if necessary... To die for his wife. 
So before we get into the, the nature of the wife's submission, we should just be clear that it's not about wives serving their husbands any more than husbands are expected to serve their wives. In that, indeed, if we use the example of Christ, as we must, husbands are expected to do much more than that. And the end of verse 22, where it says that wives should do this um, as to the Lord, <coughs> that doesn't mean that they should treat their husbands as Lord. Of course, their submission is a duty to the Lord. Their submission to their husband is a duty to the Lord, just as the husband's headship is a duty to the Lord and should be exercised in the way that God expects, in a Christ-like manner, gentle, warm, unselfish, and so on. So that's briefly, very briefly, why. But what is the nature of the submission? Because I don't think we really we really answered why properly until we think about, well, what is it that's actually being commanded here? What is the nature of this submission? Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. As I said, we're, we're talking here about an order of mutual duties and responsibilities. And there's nothing here which suggests spiritual inequality. We're all one in Christ. We're all created in the image of God. There's no inferiority, there's no superiority. Only different roles in an ordered <coughs> equality. And the words in everything can't mean slavish obedience to whatever the head wants because God has put limits on the husband's authority. He can't ask his wife to do anything that God forbids. He can't prevent his wife from doing anything that God commands. And his headship not only must have the character of Christ, but it also must be in keeping with God's will for both of them. So the husband's authority is, is very much limited to doing only what God wants. And it's interesting, this passage runs on from what Steve was telling us towards the end of his passage last week, that we should be very much um, filled with the Spirit. And if we're filled with the Spirit, all of this will be a lot easier because we'll know exactly what God's, God's will is for our lives. But it's hard. This, this is not easy. It's hard and because the husband and the wife have a duty to serve Christ first and obey all of his commands, then wives supporting and subjecting themselves to their husbands in everything just can't mean blindly doing whatever their husband wants. And a wife's support for their husband, and I would suggest that this is a very real aspect of their subjection, must include questioning, suggesting, challenging, and if necessary, telling their husbands what they need to do. As long as it's all done in a spirit of subjection. And it's a very high standard. And of course it's difficult to get the balance right. 
Actually, I don't imagine any couple has ever got this um, perfect. But we need to try and we need to recognise that this is the divine order. It's what, it's what God expects. And just as it would be a sin for a husband to lord it over their wife, so it would also be a sin for a passive husband to let, say, a more capable and intelligent wife to rule the, to rule the roost. That would, be a, that would be a sin also. Both parties must step up to the roles that God wants us to play in this life. Now, why, why is this important? I'd like to go back to what I said right at the beginning about marriage being a picture of Christ <coughs> in the church. Almost every verse in this passage has um, phrases which make a comparison. So you have words like, phrases like, just as, or in the same way, or as Christ is. So we're not over-spiritualising this. You know, sometimes you find people tend to over-spiritualise something because they want to sort of, they want you to go with what they think about something. So what better way than to say, well, this is, you know, this, this is something which, you know, we, we spiritualise this. It's very important because it's what God wants. You know, we're not... We're not over-spiritualising this. This comparison between marriage and the amazing eternal union between Christ, Christ and his church is, is very real. So let's, um, let's look at it from the other side. Let's look at it from the other side of the equation, so to speak. What is it about Christ and the church that a marriage is meant to illustrate? It's a union, isn't it? Um, verse 32 says it's a profound mystery, but it's a union nonetheless. That's, uh, I guess, our starting point. It's something that was hidden in the very first couple, Adam and Eve. And um, you'll notice that verse 31 is actually a quote from Genesis 2, which reminds us of God's grand design for, for marriage, that a husband and wife will come together and be united as one. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is described as the last Adam. So there's an interesting link there between Adam and Eve and, and the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself described himself on, on, on several occasions as the bridegroom. And then we've, uh, we've read in verses here words that tell us very clearly that the bride who Christ loves and who will eventually be united with him for all eternity, that that is the church. All of us, together, collectively, all believers who've ever lived since the day of Pentecost. And Christ loves to see husbands and wives fulfilling the roles that he has given us in this life because they're pointing forward. his wedding day they're pointing forward to his wedding we read about it in Revelation 19 just a glimpse we'll perhaps finish with a few verses from Revelation 19 at the end but this this will be the fulfilment of the ages this is the joy that was set before Christ when he died at the cross 
is looking forward to the day when he'll be united to his bride. <coughs> it's a big deal. Now, of course, subjection. Subjection is a big ask. <laughs> In verse 21, subjection is a big ask. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not easy submitting to someone who you think is an idiot. Subjection is a big ask. And it can be a big ask for a wife to submit to a husband if he's not fulfilling his own role. If he's not imitating Christ. If he lacks wisdom. If he's not spiritually minded. And to be clear that the expectations of a husband are not just what we would expect of any Christian. They are the specific instructions here, aren't they, for the husband? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. What do you think that means? There's a worldview of what that might mean. But love, as God expects the husband to fulfill in his role to his wife, it's defined Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. I think there are two elements to this love. A sacrificial element and a sanctifying element. Let's think about each of those in turn. The sacrificial element, um, I've already mentioned, like the love of Christ who gave himself up for his bride. You know, this was a really radical thing for Paul to say. It always makes me smile when I hear people saying that Paul had a bit of a downer on women and that influenced some of his teaching in the churches, why women aren't allowed to um, take part audibly in certain um, church um, um, avenues of church service. You say, oh, Paul, Paul didn't like women. <laughs> it's not true. And this was a radical thing for Paul to say at a time when women had no rights. Actually, as I was indicating at the beginning, even in the 21st century, the world still hasn't, hasn't really you know, caught up with the idea that women should have equal rights with men. Uh, so this was a radical thing for him to say. And even in Judaism, where actually the rights of the individual are very much enshrined in the Mosaic law. Even in Judaism, there were schools of, of thought. This is intelligent people who practiced the Jewish religion who had interpreted the law to think that they had the right to divorce their wife for almost anything. Putting too much salt in their tea. Becoming less attractive, which we all do over time. There was a school of thought in Judaism that actually thought that. So women's rights, there was no, no such thing as women's, women's rights. But here's Paul saying the husbands should be willing to die for their wives. And brothers, against that expectation, how much more should we be willing to show sacrificial love in other, lesser things than giving our, giving our lives? 
putting the needs and the interests of our wives before our own, providing and caring for our wives as much as we're able, giving them all the quality time and attention that they deserve. And actually, whether they deserve it or not is really quite irrelevant because our role model is Christ, who loves us and cares for us unconditionally, not depending on whether or not we deserve it. Modern marriages seem to be based on an expectation of reciprocity, that if either party doesn't fulfil their role in any, in any way, that the other has got the right to walk away from, from that marriage. That's not the model that, that Christ has shown us. It's not how he loves us. If it was, he would have walked away from us the very first day after our salvation, after we got saved. You know, that day, that first day, we let him down if we actually made it to the following day. That's not the way that God, that Christ loves us. He loves us unconditionally. So I said there's a sacrificial element to the expected, um, to the behaviour, to the love of the husband towards the wife. And the other element, I think, is sanctification. I think it is here. Because in love, Christ sanctifies the church, which means he sets it apart. He makes it special. He, he makes it holy. And that's the thought in verses 26 and 27, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present herself, present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, we're already sanctified, as, as I'm sure we all know, from the moment we got saved, by faith, we are judged righteous. We've been justified. We've been cleansed through the gospel, the word of God. Now, of course, we know that we've been, we've been cleansed through the blood of Christ and his death on the cross. But it's also true to say that we've been cleansed through the word itself, who Paul describes as the power of God for the salvation of, of, who, of, of all who believe, because we wouldn't know about what Christ had done and we wouldn't know how to, what God expects of us and how to repent and to, how to um, accept God's gift of salvation if it was not for God's word. So in that sense, I think you can say that we are cleansed through the washing of the word of God. But there is also an ongoing sanctification in our lives, isn't there? And that's also a result of the cleansing effect of God's word. As we learn more about God, as we learn more about what he expects for our lives, as we learn more about Christ, God expects us to become more like him. So in that sense, we are continually being sanctified in our lives as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus as a result of our study and meditation on God's word and putting it into practice. Now, as I said in an earlier talk when we were looking at Philippians, um, we're all works in progress as far as our character and our behaviour and our service for the Lord is concerned. We're never going to achieve perfection by ourselves, but Philippians uh, 1 and 6 says that we can be confident of, of one thing, um, and that is that God will complete his work in us until the day of Christ. That's the day, I believe, when Christ will present us, along with all other believers, to himself as his 
perfect, beautiful, radiant bride. So is there anything of that that should be seen in a Christian's marriage? I think there is, because right after verse 27, Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives. In the same way. Of course, we all have a duty to contribute to each other's spiritual growth, don't we? But it seems here that Paul's telling husbands that they have a, a special responsibility in this. That they should be role modelling Christ-like behaviours. They should be showing spiritual leadership and encouraging their, their wives to take up every opportunity of spiritual service. And you know, sometimes I think, as we recognise that in many cases... Christian wives are way ahead of their husbands in spiritual maturity. Sometimes I think uh, us husbands just need to make sure we don't get in the way. That we don't hinder our wives. And maybe the challenge to husbands is to consider, is our wife, are our wives more like Christ because of us? Or in spite of us? So there's a lot of practical instruction in this passage, isn't there? Um, and much of it, as I said at the beginning, can be applied to, to many other, other relationships. The principles of subjection that we are, 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 are being, we've been thinking about. But I think the most precious thing in the passage is what we learn about Christ himself. What he did for us when in love he died on the cross for our sins. And what he does for us every day, curing and providing um, for the church. We read in verse 29 that a person will feed and care for their, for, their, for their body just as Christ does for the church. He's caring for us. He's providing for us day to day. And of course, we've thought about what we can look forward to in a future day when he returns for us. And I'm going to finish just with that glimpse from the book of Revelation that I mentioned before and it is only a glimpse um, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a passage that will be well worth a, a wider study it also goes on to talk about the, the new Jerusalem in the same way as we're talking about the church, the body of Christ but do keep in mind that the new Jerusalem will be populated by, by the body by, by believers so I think everywhere it says that the new Jerusalem the city of God is also the bride of Christ I don't think that it's a different metaphor. I think it's, it's all the same thing. I'm not going to read on to that bit, but I am just going to read just a few verses from Revelation 19, starting at verse 6. And John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited. <clears throat> blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're all invited. 
We're all going to be there. And in our lives, the lives and the roles that God has given us to live, we have the opportunity of anticipating, foreshadowing that, that wonderful union of Christ and his church. Shall we pray?